This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when Jesse plays music like that, I know what's coming up. He loves great practical jokes, and so do we here on the show. And he's been giving us any number of stories about great practical jokesters of the 20th century in this country. And boy, have we had some doozies in the past. We had daredevils like Lawn Chair Larry, who violated L.A.'s airspace laws while floating on a lawn chair attached to weather balloons. We had a hacker like Captain Crunch who broke into the national phone system using a whistle found in a cereal box so he and his buddies could make free phone calls long distance. And of course, Alan Abel, who convinced the world that we should put pants on barnyard pets. (laughs) That was my favorite. And by the way, this show loves the show Impractical Jokers. My little girl and I can sit down for hours on end and watch those guys on True TV just, well, crack each other up. And Americans are a fun-loving group of people. And that brings us to today's story about hackers and jokesters and hoaxers. And today we bring you the tale of an old-school media hacker named Jim Moran, whose personal brand of trickery is sure to entertain. Here's Jesse. You can't buy publicity like this. Jim Moran was called, at various times, super salesman number one, America's number one prankster, and the last great bunko artist in the profession of publicity. He became famous during the 30s and 40s for devising outrageous stunts on behalf of his clients. He was a publicist and press agent for film studios, manufacturers, retailers, and Washington politicians from the 30s to the 80s. In 1989, Time Magazine ranked him as the supreme master of that most singular marketing device, the publicity stunt. There is no such thing as bad publicity. Born in 1907, Moran was the son of a chimney maker. When he was 12 years old, he was riding a bicycle and was hit by a car. The driver was so relieved to see that Moran was unharmed that he gave him $100, which Moran immediately used to take a train to New Orleans. Instead of going to college, Moran took a variety of jobs, including a tour guide in Washington, an airline executive, and a manager of a studio where congressmen recorded speeches for local radio. His favorite technique was to test the validity of popular sayings. In August of 1938, he traveled to Juneau, Alaska on behalf of General Electric, where he sold ice to an Eskimo. He then returned to Hollywood with 200 pounds of Arctic ice, claiming that it was the purest ice in the world. He sold 10 pounds of it to an actress who used it for facial treatments. In 1939, to promote a real estate development, he literally searched for a needle in a haystack. The search took him 82 and a half hours before he finally found it near the bottom and slightly to the left of center. In 1940, he led a live bull through a New York City china shop. The bull didn't damage anything. However, some of the china was broken when Moran's client nervously backed into a table. And that's just the first three publicity stunts that Jim Moran pulled off in his lifetime career of getting people's attention for a living. That advertisement had no effect on me whatsoever. In June of 1946, he sat on an ostrich egg for 19 days, 4 hours and 32 minutes in order to hatch it. He did all of this while wearing a feather headpiece with a foot-high ostrich plume. Do they bite? No, they kick, but they aren't very bright. You lie down flat, he can't see you. That's the male. He has to guard the eggs. But if you can distract him... How do I distract a male ostrich? The stunt was designed to promote a movie called The Egg and I. The baby ostrich, when hatched, was named Ossip Moran. He donated it to a zoo. 
In November of 1946, Jim Moran tricked the Los Angeles Art Association into displaying an abstract painting of his own creation, described by him as, quote, the worst thing I could think of. Okay, let's just put a happy little mountain, something about like that. Let's paint several little happy trees. He disguised the fake art as work of a previously unknown artist known as Naromji, which is his own name spelled backwards with a J-I added for confusion. The work hung beside paintings by well-known modern artists at the time and was given a price tag of $1,000. $1,000,000. It was a ton of money in 1946. The painting was even described by the Los Angeles Times as, quote, an astonishing conglomeration of paint, chalk, magazine cutouts, and fingernail polish. It consisted of a series of swirls and triangles, and in the spaces in between the lines, the artist had placed small pictures that included a fish, a head, an arm, eyes, and a leg cut out from a lingerie advertisement. But the art association was just a tad embarrassed when, at the end of the month, the publicist-slash-prankster Jim Moran revealed that he was the true author of the painting. The Art Association eventually criticized the hoax, arguing that it could make it harder for young unknown artists to get their work displayed. (laughs) One more of the dozens of pranks that Jim Moran here pulled off over the years was in 1947. During the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia's trip to the United States, Moran showed up at Ciro's restaurant in Hollywood disguised as the prince. He was accompanied by fake guards and servants. During his meal, he tipped the waiters and band members with large gems. On his way out of the restaurant, the goatskin bag holding the gems accidentally broke, scattering the jewels all over the floor. One of his fake servants started to pick them up, but Moran imperiously waved his hand to signal him to stop, because picking up the jewels was beneath the dignity of a prince. He then left the restaurant, and upon his departure, the Hollywood elite dining at the restaurant immediately scrambled to snatch up the jewels, all of which were actually just dime store trinkets of no value. And those are just a few of the many publicity stunts and flat-out hoaxes that Jim Moran pulled off during his long career. Jim Moran died in Inglewood, New Jersey in October of 1999. His obituary, written in the New York Times, read... His life might be described by two symbols, the exclamation point and the dollar sign. He pushed outrageousness to the outer limits to seize the attention of the buying public. He got the attention he desired. Even his colleagues in the publicity business, a species not given to promoting much of anything without being paid, gave him respect. And that is the story of publicist, hoaxer, and prankster, Jim Moran. This is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Jesse, and we want more. That's all I can say. We want more of these. And just as my little girl and I can't get enough of impractical jokers, I don't think Americans can ever get sick of good and decent and sometimes even on the edge practical jokes. By the way, don't try practical jokes on people who can't take it. That's cruel. But for people who can, bring it on, baby. That's what we say. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Impractical jokester, hoaxer, Jim Moran story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about our nation's past. And this one next, well, it's a story, well, part of a story that you know, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. We're about to tell you that story, but the more interesting story, which is the Great Chicago Recovery. Experts agree on where that fire started back in 1871, a little under two miles from downtown Chicago, just to the southwest. But how it started remains an open question. And so we bring you Tim Samuelson, the cultural historian of the city of Chicago, to tell us about this area and dive into the mythology of how the Chicago fire got started. It was an area of small shacks and cottages of largely Irish immigrants. The fire itself began in the barn of Patrick and Catherine O'Leary. For the scale of Mrs. O'Leary and her existence in the neighborhood, she was an entrepreneurial businesswoman. There was more than one cow in the barn, and she had a you know, modest but substantial business. And, of course, the thing that's amazing is that for years people told this story about her at night milking the cow, the cow kicking over a lantern, setting the barn afire, and then high winds and dry conditions go and burn down a significant part of the city. Well, if you have a dairy business, you don't milk your cows at night. In fact, usually at the time the fire started, and we're talking about, oh, maybe about a quarter to nine in the evening, you're likely asleep in your house because you have to get up early to milk those cows. And again, there's multiple cows in the barn. So it makes for kind of an interesting, ironic thing that poor Mrs. O'Leary gets fingered. But where did the fire start? You bet it started in their barn. And ironically, what didn't burn in the Great Chicago Fire? The O'Leary's house. It made it through just fine. But the fire took off on a path that would go to the northeast, jumps the Chicago River, headed right for downtown Chicago, which was a fairly built-up metropolis by 1871 with substantial buildings built out of stone, brick and iron fronts. Many people talk about downtown Chicago being largely wood buildings. That's another myth that kind of needs to get solved. The buildings of Chicago were of size and substantial architectural character and quality comparable to other cities of that era. But when you have the conditions of dry conditions, high winds, those stone walls will crumble. A dignified front made out of cast iron would melt like butter. And it wasn't the case of one building setting fire to another. It was the case of such an intense heat that things would just spontaneously combust. Let's talk a little bit about Chicago and what caused the fire in terms of Chicago's growth. Because in 1840, Chicago was basically a, a small Midwestern town. I wouldn't even call it a city. Talk about the growth, the meteoric growth from 1840 to 1870 that set the conditions under which a fire like this could have even happened. People look at Chicago as this major metropolis, in which it is. 
But let's go back to, let's say, the 1830s or the 1840s. What was here? Not much. In fact, if you were here in 1830, people argue about how many, but it might be 50 to 100 people. The buildings are just little shacks along this meandering little river off of Lake Michigan. But here you have a location that, yes, it may be remote. It may even be this swampy backwater. But it was the perfectly located swampy backwater because as a country is at that point starting to grow west, Chicago was the strategic location located on the chain of the Great Lakes that could connect to the waterways of the east, and everything and everyone heading west would funnel through Chicago. So Chicago is the perfect place for anyone or anything to get anywhere. So you go from a mud hole in 1830 with just a handful of people you start to get a few thousands of people in the 1840s, modest little buildings. By 1870, you have a major metropolis of over 300,000 people. It becomes a headquarters of commerce and manufacturing. It was a place that when you had the combination of the waterways meeting the rails, you could bring raw materials in, transform them into something else with a large labor force, and ship them out conveniently anywhere in not only the country, but in the world. Let's talk about the night of the fire. How long did it rage? How much of the city did it consume? And what did the fire spare? People often talk about the Great Chicago Fire, and they'll ask me, you know, well, it destroyed the whole city, didn't it? Well, it didn't. The evening of the fire on October 8, 1871, was in the center of a really tough drought. Things were really dry. Now, Chicago had a network of fire hydrants and fire suppression systems, um, but it certainly wasn't prepared for the kind of catastrophic events that happened on that fateful night of October the 8th. So the fire does break out in the barn of the O'Leary family. There is some bungling on the part of how the fire was reported that delayed firefighters in getting to the fire to extinguish it. However, the conditions were such that with the wood buildings that surrounded the O'Leary barn, the high winds and the dry conditions it's probably can be said that the fire was almost unstoppable from the start. The fire races through the wood buildings of this immigrant neighborhood less than two miles southwest of downtown Chicago and then carries through in kind of a wedge. And, well, the fire didn't destroy the whole city, but it took out its whole central business district heart. The imposing stone, iron, and brick buildings of down Chicago were totally consumed. There were wood details in downtown Chicago in terms of like ornamental mansard roofs, wood paving blocks, but for the most part, the buildings were fairly substantial. But the interiors are largely made out of wood. The total heat totally combusts them. 
So the fire starts, let's say, a quarter to eight in the evening. And you have, by one o'clock in the morning, it is burning downtown Chicago. And there is the courthouse right in the central square that is basically in flames. And then it races across the main part of the Chicago River, burns out a significant part of the north side of Chicago, burning out to almost a triangular wedge that would be on the north side, almost near what's Fullerton Avenue and Clark Street today. But all the city didn't burn. The south side of Chicago, that was a significant part of the city, was hardly touched at all. The west side of Chicago, which was also a significant part of Chicago, was hardly touched at all, except for that wedge that burned uh, from the start of the fire at the O'Leary Barn. And also, there were areas of the north side, and the farther reaches of the north side into the west that didn't burn at all. Chicago was able to recover fairly quickly after the fire, because the one thing that the fire could not destroy was Chicago's perfect location that made the city thrive to begin with. And you could get anything you wanted to rebuild the city by the same waterways, the same rail lines coming into the city that could still deliver the goods for the city to thrive. And there were substantial parts of the city that were untouched by the fire, where the businesses that once had their offices in downtown Chicago could take temporary quarters. So you had businessmen who had, you know, elegant offices in downtown Chicago. The ruins were still smoking, and they were making arrangements to get quarters in old boarding houses south of downtown Chicago and reestablish their business and get to work rebuilding the destroyed city. Didn't take long. Didn't take long indeed. When we come back, we'll find out how this all happened. We continue with Tim Samuelson here on Our American Stories. We continue here with Our American Stories and the story of the Great Chicago Fire and, more importantly, the Great Chicago Recovery. And we're talking to cultural historian and the guy who knows just about all there is to know about Chicago, cultural historian Tim Samuelson. Let's talk about the damage caused by the fire and the extraordinary recovery. We had 100,000 people were homeless, 17,000 buildings were destroyed, and 300 people were killed. Tim, how did the people of Chicago their spirit, play into this city's recovery. I can let you in on a little secret about Chicago that's not often talked about, and it's something that I think is a matter of pride, is that for all of its growth and prosperity, Chicago is still a tough little can-do Midwestern town in spirit. And so people who came to Chicago came here with the idea of making a buck, 
The people who came to Chicago in its early growth were the outsiders who didn't fit in to uh, old established societies. Maybe they were a part of a profession that was done the same way for years and years and years. They had a different way of doing things, but they never had a chance to do it because the old society was there to say, oh, you can't do things like that. So Chicago quickly became a place that was like undaunted by any kind of challenge that you could imagine. They could build anything, and there was the incentive to do it. There was nobody to tell you not to try a new way of doing things. And what wound up happening is these new way of doing things that sometimes the people out east kind of laughed and sneered at wound up changing the standard way people did things. So this was an innovative hub. So now you've got the central part of the city, a smoking ruin, a large part of the north side, people homeless, people just rolled up their sleeves and got together and worked to build things as quickly as possible. One of the first buildings built in the downtown area, and the downtown was still smoking in rubble, is William Kerfoot, who was a real estate man, builds a wooden shack, which he called the first building in the burned district. And he had a sign on it, hand-painted, that said, all gone but wife, children, and energy. That's the Chicago spirit. And it wasn't long before, even into early 1872, and just months after the fire, new buildings were rising that replaced the old ones. Ironically, the size and the scale of those buildings in the, uh, wasn't that much different from the ones that were there before. But then there's an unusual phenomenon. So there's all people who thought that they missed the boat by not getting in on Chicago in the early age of the 1840s, 1850s, when it was just beginning. You couldn't get a foothold. Now people came for the new opportunities after the fire. Chicago grew in a scale like it had never before. The downtown area, which was largely confined into a small geographic area defined by the, the features that gave Chicago growth, the lake on one side, the river on two sides, rail yards to the south, didn't give a lot of room for development of new office space. Many cities can grow sideways. Chicago couldn't do that. The downtown, after the fire, was built up with all these elegant four- and five-story buildings. They didn't have elevators for the most part. But Chicago was proud of these wonderful Second Empire stone fronts. Chicago was reborn. They would talk glowingly of these new buildings that arose in 1872, 1873. There was even a big depression, and they kept on building. But... By the 1880s, these same buildings that Chicago was so proud of as a symbol of an all-new city were too small for all the businesses that wanted to be there. These same buildings were being knocked down within 15 years. 15-year-old buildings were being called old and obsolete. And these innovative Chicagoans raided the toolbox of the Industrial Revolution 
goaded by the real estate people and the landowners to make buildings taller in taking things like metal framing, perfecting elevators into these amazing high-speed vehicles of vertical traffic, Chicago creates the skyscraper. The first skyscrapers arise in the mid-1880s on the site of buildings that only you know, 15 years before people were saying were so wonderful and modern. So the fire actually set in motion a series of chain reactions that made Chicago not only rebuilt, but even regenerate itself over and over again to make it the city that it is today. And indeed, the population in 1871 was 300,000. It jumped to 500,000 in 1880. And by 1890, it had catapulted past the 1 million mark, a triple increase from the Great Chicago Fire. That's, it's unimaginable today Tim, that something like this could be done. Nobody could believe the growth of the city, and the, the old cities of the East shook their heads in disbelief. In fact, they would kind of look how to disparage the city as some kind of, and, and looked at things like its architecture as some kind of raw, crude kind of work. It was often a simplified architecture that was very direct in expression of materials. Well, this is the birth of modern architecture. It was happening here. The birth of a skyscraper happened here. It didn't happen out east where cities could grow sideways. And in population, Chicago not only grew in terms of people arriving in Chicago after the fire, but it began in the 1880s to aggressively annex adjoining towns, making that part of Chicago itself. So you have this behemoth of a city in terms of population and growing geographic size by 1890. And much to the surprise and perhaps anger of the old established cities of the East, when it was decided to have a world's exposition on the event of the 400th anniversary of Columbus's landing in the Americas, cities out east thought they had it buttoned up. Who got it? Chicago. And the world's Columbian exposition showed Chicago not only as a city that had suddenly grown up in a place of smokestacks and stockyards, but a city of culture and achievement that was there before the world. Indeed, the Chicago School of Architecture and so much more in art and music. I want to read one thing to you, a final point, and get your reaction. It is from British novelist and journalist Mary Ann Hardy, and she was an international writer who wrote about the recovery. We expected to find traces of ugliness and deformity everywhere, crippled buildings and lame, limping streets, running along forlorn, crooked conditions, waiting for a time to restore their vigor and build up their beauty anew. But Phoenix-like, the city has risen from the ashes, grander and statelier than ever. Talk about that. It's absolutely true that Chicago had reinvented itself, and it's unusual to have the center of a large metropolis suddenly built anew from scratch all at once. A typical downtown of an American city would consist of buildings of different scale and quality from a long timeline of their history. 
here was something that not only is rising from the ashes all at once, new and modern, but the matter of pride. And therefore trying to show the world that it was indestructible, that there was a quality to these buildings. And so you looked at it, it wasn't just some place built out of necessity or makeshift quarters. These were elegant, modern buildings, and it occupied the whole of downtown and also of the areas that were in the path of the fire. And you've been listening to Tim Samuelson, and he's the cultural historian of the city of Chicago, and he's right about the quality of the buildings, but all of that, it all represented the quality of the people and the quality of those old Midwestern values. The story of the great Chicago recovery here on Our American Story. we continue here with Our American Stories, and it's time for our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries. More than 67,000 people across America are employed by Coke, and there's a good chance that their work intersects with your own story in some way. The great folks at Coke make products that help improve medical devices, consumer electronics, vehicle safety, fabrics for clothing, filtration for clean water, and innovations for popular household brands. In the process, they're creating jobs and opening paths to opportunity for everyone to create their own American story. Learn more about Coke's incredible work at CokeIND.com. That's Coke, K-O-C-H-I-N-D.com. And without further ado, here's the story brought to us by Joey Cortez of this remarkable young man. One day, I was watching the news, and I saw, unfortunately, that a set of twins had died due to heat stroke in a hot car. And at this point in time, my mom was pregnant with my baby sister, and I didn't want this to happen to her or anybody else. So I decided I had to invent something that would solve this problem. Hello, my name is Danny Mefford. I'm 12 years old, and I enjoy inventing. When I was young, I used to have this kit called Snap Circuits, which is basically a little circuiting kit, but I always used to build things with that, then take them apart, then build new things with it. I started watching this TV show with my dad called Nova, and they had one segment about outer space with Neil deGrasse Tyson in it, and that just really got me interested in his book, so I started reading up about stuff like that. And ever since then, I've been fascinated by space. Books have knowledge, and like when you read stuff like that, It opens your understanding of everything. There's this test that we take. It's called the Kogat test. And if you place in the 95th percentile or higher, you get into that cognitive ability class. We basically do things that you want to do in an ordinary class. Like we do problem-solving things that really open our minds up. The teacher also uses a national curriculum called Invention Convention which helps develop creative problem-solving and critical thinking skills through invention and entrepreneurship. The students find problems and create inventions to solve them, competing with other students in their classroom, within their schools, state, and even across the nation. The first invention I worked on was back in third grade. 
it was an invention to block rays of sun from getting into your photos. We made out cardboard, then we went to popsicle sticks, then we went to paper mache that we covered in tin foil and painted black. It was really, it was a really fun process. In the fourth grade, I invented the Baby Saver. The Baby Saver is a weight-activated heat sensor that attaches to a car seat, and when it gets too hot or cold inside of a car, it will notify a parent or a guardian that the baby is stuck inside of the hot car. I started tinkering around with some snap circuits, some heat sensors, some tactile buttons, until I just got a bunch of prototypes, until I built my way up to the invention I have now. So... On the base of the car seat, there is a momentary tactile push button. When pressure or weight is applied to it, it turns on a circuit. Connected to the bottom of this are two black wire extenders coming from the bottom of the car seat. Connected to the black wire extenders are a 9 to 12 volt converter and an LED light up screen. The 9 to 12 volt converter allows my invention to be plugged into any USB port, which can be more modern cars solar panels, and even battery packs. Connected to the LED light-up screen is a temperature probe, which is placed at the top of the car seat, and is placed there because heat rises. Heat stroke does occur at 104 degrees. My alarm goes off at 85 degrees to give parents, police, or anyone who needs to rescue the baby enough time to get to the child. My invention has an alarm that goes off, which is almost like an alarm to wake you up. I want Bluetooth capability from my invention to the parent's phone. That is something that I'm still looking into right now. But yeah, that would be the futuretic. Once it gets too hot, it automatically notifies the parent. On my app, there is a section where you enter what your car looks like, the license plate of your car, the location of your car. So if it does have to go to the police, the police know exactly where it's located, what the car looks like, and what to look for. In any process of making anything, there are points where you want to give up or you want to stop trying. But thankfully, I have a very supportive family around me that when something like that happened, they told me to get back up and start anew. In any design process, I don't like to call them mistakes or mess-ups, but they're unscheduled learning opportunities where you look at that, you say, hey, I messed up there. I'm going to look up, move forward, try again. So basically that's what I did until I got something that worked. And I tinkered around again and got something better than that. I grew off from my old inventions and made them into the invention I now. I recently went to National Invention Convention, which is in Michigan, at the Henry Ford Museum. So the National Invention Convention is the third and final contest in the Invention League competition. First you do regionals, which is at your school. Then you do state, which is where you come together with people around the state and compete there. Then you go to nationals, which is from people across America and from other countries come there too. The couple awards I won was first place for fifth grade, 
And the second award I won was the Coke Industries Kid Innovator. There was around 600 people there, and they all had so incredibly fantastic inventions. And I really didn't think that I could outweigh that, but when I heard that I was chosen to have the Coke Award, it was amazing. I mean, like, it was incredible. I was in awe because when stuff like that happens, you really don't believe it's happening. But I was so grateful, and it just all added up to that moment right there. And it was awesome. Honestly, I had no clue what what the award meant until we got an email. Then I was just like, oh, God, this is more than just a award at Nationals. They actually invited me out to Molex Automotives, one of their R&D departments in Michigan. The first thing I see when I walk in is they have a slideshow playing, and it said, Welcome, Danny Mefford. So automatically, I was feeling very welcomed from them, which was amazing. I got handed a badge. Then we went into a conference room where I got to brainstorm with people about my invention. And it was crazy because when they gave me the lab tour, I got to see so many things I didn't even know that they have to do before they put things out there on the market. Like they were testing wires to put on the bottom of a car and they had to strap them onto these machines, and, like, the machine would shake for, like, 30 minutes. They would also put these in these boxes with, like, 300-degree temps to see if they would withstand that. It was definitely life-changing because it opened my eyes to what kind of jobs are out there. It opened my eyes to what I can do to get my product on the market. So, yeah, I'm so so glad that I was able to have the opportunity. And still, to this day, I'm using the things that I was taught at Molex in my everyday life. I have, I'm patent pending for the Baby Saver, which is another amazing thing that Coke and Molex was able to provide me. And actually, I'm going to Nationals this year for my invention, the Quick Click. The quick click is a simpler and easier way to install a car seat. So basically, it is a slim piece of plexiglass with a carabiner attached to the end. And you slide it through the hole of the car seat, which nobody likes having to shove the seatbelt through that little hole where you get your hand scratched up and stuff like that. That's never fun. So my invention is a thin piece of plexiglass with a carabiner and when you slide it through the end you attach it to the seatbelt and then you simply pull it through without the hassle of having to do it by hand. My parents inspire me to keep on moving forward but another person who inspires me is Stephen Hawkins because he even through his disabilities in life he pushed through that and became one of the most well-known physicists to ever step foot on Earth. It inspires me that even when something bad happens, you just have to push forward. I would like to be remembered as a human who lived a kind life. I just want to be someone who's kind, helpful, innovative, 
and loving, and someone who changed the world. And you've been listening to Danny Mefford. My goodness, be still my heart. And what parents? That is not an accident, folks. That is some that is some great parenting. And by the way, mess-ups aren't mess-ups. I'm never using it again. It's an unscheduled learning opportunity. An unscheduled learning opportunity. And by the way, what work Coke Industries is doing, CokeIND.com. That's CokeIND.com. Danny Mefford's story, our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, This is Spinal Tap. It was released in 1984, and I've often believed the world could be split in two ways, and that is those who've seen Spinal Tap and those who haven't. And if you haven't, see it, rent it, because it is one of the funniest movies ever made, and you don't need to have loved or liked any music to appreciate it. Here's Jesse talking about this cult classic. This is Spinal Tap, is a 1984 American rock music mockumentary comedy film written, scored by, and starring Rob Reiner, Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and Harry Shearer. The film portrays the fictional British heavy metal band Spinal Tap. Directed by Reiner, the movie satirizes the wild and personal behavior and musical pretensions of hard rock and heavy metal bands, as well as other rockumentaries that were released around the same time. All of the dialogue in the film was improvised, and many of the scenes focus on trivial matters being blown way out of proportion. Like in this scene that portrays a prima donna rock star backstage complaining about the size of a piece of bread. Look, this, this miniature bread, it's like, I've been working with this now for about half an hour, and I can't figure out, let's say I want to Mm -hmm. a bite, right? You got this? You'd like bigger bread? Exactly. I don't understand how... You could fold this, though. Well, no, then it's half the size. No, not the bread. You could fold the meat. Yeah, but then it it breaks up, it breaks apart like this. No, 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 you put it on the bread like this, see? But then if you keep folding it, it keeps breaking, and then everything has to be folded, and then it's this, and I don't want this. I want large bread so that I can put this... Right. So then it's like this, yeah. but this doesn't work because then it's all... Because it hangs out like this. <laughs> Look, yeah. would you be holding no, this? No, I wouldn't want to eat. I wouldn't want to put no. it in my mouth. All right, A, exhibit, no, right. exhibit A, right. and then we move right. on to this. Harry Shearer, Rob Reiner, Christopher Guest, and Michael McKeon were given $10,000 to write the script. They made a 20-minute version of the film to better demonstrate the improvisation they had in mind. Several scenes from the demo are actually in the final movie. Here's director Rob Reiner. Chris and uh, and Michael, for years, had been improvising with these characters, these British rock and rollers, uh, in parties and stuff like that. They'd always been improvising. So uh, we said, "Well, let's do you know, we'll do we'll do a takeoff of these British rockers, and we'll put them on, we'll put them in the TV show." And when we were doing the that that segment of the show, they'd improvise, you know, on the set while we were just waiting to you know do do a shot. And it was hysterical. They were in character. And we said, geez, it would be great to find a way 
to take these characters and do something more than just this little three-minute bit. And so that became kind of the beginnings of what ultimately became Spinal Tap. The faux documentary covers a 1982 United States concert tour by the fictional rock group Spinal Tap to promote their new album called Smell the Glove, interspersed with one-on-one interviews with the members of the group and footage of the group from previous periods in their fictitious careers. Here again is director Rob Reiner on developing the concept for the film with Harry Shearer, who plays bassist Derek Smalls in the mockumentary. Harry and I had an idea to do a a film about roadies and what went on backstage in a rock and roll tour. We thought we could make fun and have some fun with it. And then a movie came, named Roadie came out. We thought, okay, forget that. Meanwhile, Chris and, and, uh, and Michael had done a little short of these two rockers that, you know, run into each other in a hotel room and they did it on tape. And we kind of gravitated back towards each other and said, gee, let's, kind of put this together and maybe we can you know make a whole movie about these characters and 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 a tour and what goes on backstage and that kind of evolved in that way in the late 1960s rob reiner acted in bit roles in several television shows including batman the andy griffith show and the beverly hillbillies one of his first films this is spinal tap well i mean it wasn't a typical first time director experience because like i said there's no script and so, you know, it was all improvised and it was all shot like a documentary. So it wasn't, you know, like having to set up shots in a traditional way that a director would, you know, design a movie. I mean, we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants and, you know, improvising as we went along. We just had a basically arc. We had a, an outline with an arc, you know, a very loose arc to the whole thing. And then we just kind of improvised the scenes and shoot it like a real tour on, you know, on band on tour and shoot a documentary and then kind of shaped it in the the cutting room. It took me nine months to cut that film. So basically the writing for the film was done in the cutting room. We shot for, you know, 25, 30 days, something like that. Uh, But we had a lot, tons and tons of footage. We had, you know, the first cut of the film was seven hours long. We had like, you know, four hours of a film and three hours of interview footage. Just me interviewing them in all different, you know, places. So Reiner is the director of the actual film, who also plays the director of This Is Spinal Tap in the film. Reiner says his character was based on another director of a real rockumentary that was popular at the time. We also learn how the film was received by actual rock stars and critics alike. Well, my character is kind of loosely based on Martin Scorsese's character in The Last Waltz, where he was in the film. You know, he kind of put himself in the film, so uh, I call myself Marty DeBerge, which was kind of a cross between Marty Scorsese and... You know, De Sica and Bergman and Fellini and put them all together. They loved it. They loved it. I mean, they saw themselves. And, I, you know, I've talked to rockers over the years. And they've all seen it. And I remember one time when I was doing Princess Pride and Sting came in to meet me for a part. And he said he'd seen the movie like 50 times. He says every time. He says, I look at it, he says, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. And, you know, so many stories of people telling me they have worn out their their videos on bus and on tour on the bus. They throw it on all the time. They watch it. When it first came out, people thought it was a real band. I mean, they, and then people don't understand why would I make a movie about a band that nobody had ever heard of, and that was so bad. You know, why would you? Why don't you make a movie about a good band like the Stones or something or Led Zeppelin or something like that? But um, they, I said they already made a movie about this <laughs> Led Zeppelin. I said, no, it's like Saturday Night Live. You know, satire. You know, you make fun of it. Oh, okay, okay. It took a while for people to catch up to it and realize that it was a spoof. 
Vicious Spinal Tap was only a modest success upon its initial release. However, the film found greater success and a cult following after it was released on VHS. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to the story of the first major Hollywood mockumentary. This is Spinal Tap, released this day in history in 1984. And as always, all of our segments, even the fun ones and the funny ones, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Visit their online classes, all 12 of them, at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. This is Our American Stories. More on Spinal Tap after these messages. Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us as always by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn all about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, in 1926, the late Rich DeVos was born. Rich was the owner of the Orlando Magic and the co-founder of the direct-selling company Amway that's empowered more than 3 million people with the opportunity to own their own businesses. And our own Alex Cortez brings us his incredible life story. We tell people Haley's Comet was a rare experience only appearing before the human eye once every 75 years. Well, that's rich. I know you can do it because this is a business made for sinners. If you meet a guy like him once every 75 years, consider yourself lucky. It's just made for people who screw up and do it wrong all the time. I think if I wait another 75 years, it would be hard to meet anyone more inspiring than Rich. He said, you're getting pretty old, and we'll give you one little piece of paper so maybe you won't talk too long. Uh, but you'd be surprised how long I can talk on a little card like that. You'll go a lifetime and never meet a man like Rich DeVos. I took Latin once. I graduated on the condition that I'd never take it again. Rich probably would be, you could argue, the most unique businessman in the history of America. The kids in college today go into the social field. You know, they want to want to work for the welfare of others. Well, if you got any guts, you'll get in business because we provide more welfare than anybody else. We provide employment for 72 million people. That's what we do. He's had extraordinary success with his business. People say to me, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a cheerleader. I was a cheerleader in high school. I worked after school. I couldn't play sports. So I was a cheerleader, even though they didn't have cheerleaders. I'd just go out on the floor in the basketball game, and I'd lead a cheer. Just because I wanted to. That got me started in being a cheerleader. 
And all I've done all my life is, it, it, so I run all the world telling all these people, you can do it, you can do it. Next thing you know, I got a billion dollars. He kept his family intact. Well, Helen and I have been married uh, 56 years. So, uh, yeah. we, uh, I'll tell you the secret to doing that. Live long enough. <laughs> Never abandon his faith. I know you didn't come here for a religious sermon. It's okay, I'm not gonna stick with it. But I'm just gonna let you know. You ought to know where I come from. Has been a extraordinarily generous giver. I give because the Lord told me to give, but more than that, I give here. Because this is our town. The town doesn't owe me anything. I just think he may be one of the most unique businessmen in the history of America. I, I like garbage men, but I went out for four weeks in a row. This fellow comes by at 6.30 in the morning because I wanted to meet him. He said, hi, how are you this morning? Just came out to tell you I appreciate your coming. He looked at me and he said, are you just getting up or are you just coming in? <laughs> I said, no, I, really, I just came out to say hello. He said, I appreciate you coming by. Now, if you don't think you appreciate his coming by, you just let him skip you a couple times. <laughs> and you'll find out how important he is in your life. You know, about the fourth time I went out there, I said, just come out and say hello again. Do you realize how important the work is that you do? What it does for the sanitation of this community? How it protects the health and welfare of all the people? He says, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> I've been picking up garbage for years, man. Nobody ever told me that. And I say to you, isn't it too bad that a fellow American who's doing what he's able to do has had no one tell him how important his work is? He says, you know, he says, you're one in a million. Well, I don't want to be one in a million. I was born in 1926. That was in the beginning days of a depression. My father was unemployed for many years. We had to move in and live in my grandmother's attic. So that's how we started. Here's Rich's son, Doug. And he remembers a boy coming to the door selling a magazine. The boy was saying, hey, you know, Mr. Talking to his father, to my grandpa saying, hey, I got a magazine I'd like you to buy, and was talking about it, giving the sales pitch, and my grandpa would say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna buy your magazine, and the, the boy would say, you know, please, sir, you know, it's the last one. I, I, you know, if I sell this one, I get to go home, it only costs a dime. And my grandpa had to say, son, I don't have a dime. I can't buy your magazine. So even in that situation, losing a home, not having a job, not having any money, to be able to be encouraging. My grandpa was always encouraging. The future's going to be better. We're going to get through this. Something's going to happen. It's not going to stay like this forever. We're not stuck. No matter how bad it seems right now, we're not stuck. I'm going to get a job or get our house back. We're going to just work through this tough time to get to a better time. And I think that's the story that just shaped his life. Being unemployed and all of that, I, I, I was amazed by his positive attitude. He kept saying to me, Whatever you're going to do, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Get in business for yourself.
Here's the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, Pat Williams. Own your own business, son. That's the only way to control your own future. You know, a lot of people don't think they can do a business of their own. They think they get out of school and try to say, I can't get a job. There aren't any jobs available. Then start a business. Don't sit and wait for other people. When I was in high school, I never thought about going to college. It wasn't on my priority list. When I went to school, they would say, he's not college material. That's what they told about me. He's not smart enough or good enough or whatever. They were probably true at that time. I've concluded since then that we all grow up at different speeds. And we all get serious at different times. All my high school years were World War II years. As soon as I got out of high school, I went to war. And I met a guy in high school who became a friend and a business partner for a lifetime. And all we talked about in high school was getting in business. And when we come home from the service, we talked about getting in business. That guy's name, Jay Van Andel. And here's his son, Steve. They both went off into the service and they weren't together, so they would write letters back and forth. If you read the letters, what they're talking about is not as much what's happening right now, but what's going to happen when we get out of the service, we're gonna start something, what do we wanna look at? And every time one of them would see something, they would think this might be an opportunity, they'd write a letter and they'd talk about it. It wasn't like a single idea that they were trying to refine and figure out how to do. They were looking at everything. We started many businesses. We started a flying school, and we didn't know how to fly. We went on a sailboat to sail to the Caribbean. Had never been on a sailboat before. Sank off Cuba. Started several other businesses that failed. Started a restaurant once, and I recommend everybody have a restaurant once and get over with it. <laughs> Terrible business. If you want to have one, go get it, but get it over with. But you can do it if that's what you want to do. It just takes a business of dedication. There are no easy businesses. A student then asked Rich, did he ever get discouraged after all this failure? Yeah, you always get discouraged. Uh, we just look on to the next thing we're going to try. We were in a toy business, uh, beautiful horses, you know, a nice little flat piece of plywood, a little handle on it, had wheels on it, you could roll, that was going to be great. We never sold one of them. I still burn the wheels in my fireplace, you know. <laughs> we, we, then we made ping pong tables for a while, but, you know, we, we would try everything. And then we started selling Neutralite. We bought a sales kit for $50. So, well, let's go try this, see if we can make this work. And selling Neutralite vitamins became the basis of their great worldwide company, Amway. When we come back, the story of Rich DeVos, born on this day in history in 1926. This is Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American story and Rich DeVos's story. In 1959, Rich and his partner Jay Van Andel founded Amway, the direct selling company that has empowered over 3 million people to start their own independent businesses. And we return to Pat Williams on their precarious beginning. Rich and Jay planned a huge event in nearby Lansing, Michigan. Their goal was to sign up 200 new distributors in the Lansing area. Pretty ambitious goal, by the way. They took out radio ads. They bought uh, costly display ads in the Lansing newspapers. Then they went out and rented a 200-seat auditorium. Now the day of the event has arrived. They walked the streets of Lansing, handing out flyers and personally inviting hundreds of people to come. I mean, they could not have been more thorough. So the big night arrives, and Rich and Jay walk out onto the stage of the auditorium, and they face their audience. (laughs) Are you ready for this, gang? Two people. That's right, there were two people in the auditorium. They had spent several thousand dollars and uncounted hours to attract a crowd, and then the the audience that turned out uh, probably wouldn't have filled a phone booth. They had spent everything that they had on the promotion, and now Rich and Jay had another problem. They, They couldn't afford a hotel room. So they drove home that night, arrived home at about 2 a.m., Uh, I think a lot of business people would have probably called it quits then and there. But not Rich and Jay. They persevered. And, of course, the rest of the Yamway story is history. Sometimes I've had halls as big as this one and two people would show up. And those are the days when you wonder if you're in the right business. You just got to put your toe in the water. If you're going to wait till you know everything, you'll never do anything. And you always say, well, I got to check some more. I'm going to do a little more research. So go ahead, just keep going. And you'll never get into business. You're going to go swimming, you got to get wet. We want to be in business for ourselves. And we had the philosophy that everybody else wanted to be in business for themselves. And if you take surveys today, you'll find that 60, 70% of the people in the United States would like to be in business for themselves. But they never get there because they're afraid to jump out and run on their own. So we thought we would develop a plan where you don't have to jump out there on your own, where you can keep your job and do this part-time. They can't go out and start holding meetings and rallying and bring 100 people together because they're still afraid that they don't know how to do this. So learn the business by selling some product. Getting a customer is the key. There are no obstacles in your way of getting a customer. Neutralite was a hard sell, harder in those days because it was ridiculed. It was such a hard sell, it was, let's sell soap. Everybody uses soap. Most everybody uses soap. Anyway. And that became an easier sell. So that some of the people who didn't have any skills could at least sell Amway home products. That, that was a, a, a level of entry for people as they learn. 
We all deal with people who say, I can't sell. Well, none of us could sell. But we all learned, didn't we? It's a skill that anybody can learn. Don't buy that story that they can't sell. That, 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 you know, we started to make excuses for people who said they didn't want to sell. We just gradually taught them how to sell. So they sold to their friends and their neighbor and their mother and then maybe an uncle and an aunt and, and pretty soon they gained confidence. I remember at our meetings, if somebody made one sale, we'd put them on the stage to tell about it. That was important. That was the biggest thing they'd ever done in their life making one sale. What an event, what a celebration. Every time you go out socially, you're making conversation, you're talking, you're selling each other ideas. You know, anybody can sell, because you're doing it all the time. You're trying to sell your kids on getting home on time, or you're trying to tell your kids to study harder. You know, you're selling every day, everywhere. The only difference is now you're gonna get paid for it. but you are a salesman. Everybody can join Amway. There are no restrictions and no requirements. All through the years we've had people say, why don't you tell us what kind of people to look for? We need a test so we can determine who's really good and what kind of people are qualified. And we'll save all this dropout business. And we always said, no, we're not even going to listen to it because it was a principle. We didn't, we didn't want restriction. We wanted anybody from anywhere, from any culture and any language at any place on the world to be able to join this business, take charge of their life and start a new. That's, that's an important foundation and it's a principle of the business. Opportunity for all. Dick, talk to you about some single parents, and all I can do is salute you. And I don't know why it came unraveled for you or what went wrong, and quite frankly, I don't care. It's not on the application. You don't have to explain it to me or to anybody what heart at break or disappointment you've had or what went wrong that night or whatever. You see, because we hold you in high regard as a child of God, regardless of all that. And that's what we can start with. And when we start with that, then all the other things take care of themselves, don't they? So that's the first foundation. I'm not trying to give you a sermon. I'm just telling you that's, that's where Jay and I came from. And when we sat in the basement and talked about Amway the very first time, we talked about this very subject. And we said, people don't want welfare. And this was the age of socialism and everybody saying, well, people just want their unemployment checks and they want all this. And Jay and I said, that's not true. That's just not true. We believe that people want to be free and independent, earn their own way, make their own living. They're willing to work hard because they're worthy people. And on that, we will build a business. And that's how it began. People talk about poor people. You know, there's all these poor people. 
I said, no, there are not all these poor people. These are temporarily poor people. They just moved on. There is no one fixed group of poor people. That's, that's last year's people. There's a new group moving into that category now. And those who were there, we hope have moved out of there. Don't think is that a static situation. Sometimes we see a lot of people in poverty and say, well, they're all poor people. No, no, those are, those are the temporarily poor. They're gonna move out of there. We're gonna get them out of there. We're gonna do everything we can to get them out of there. But they have to take charge of their lives and say, I'm not gonna live like this anymore. People move on if we give them hope and chance. You and I gotta be in the business of lifting them up and we don't know where they're gonna go, what they're gonna do. All we know is they need a pat on the back today. They need an encouraging word from you or a little note and next thing you know, they're doing something better. We are the makers of people. And what a unique American voice Rich DeVos's was. The love, the heart, the compassion. People don't need welfare, he said. That's not true. We believe people want to be free and independent. And on that, we will build a business. No final words have been spoken by an American businessman. And when we come back, more on the life of Rich DeVos here on Our American Stories. final portion of Rich DeVos's remarkable life story. He was born on this day in history in 1926. And we return to Rich's friend, Don Maine. He's a spellbinder of a speaker. And he always talked openly about his faith. And I always thought, well, that's fine for him. If he wants to be religious, I'm getting along just fine without any religion. I was in my mid-50s, middle of a very successful career. And I just thought it was interesting. He always kept mentioning that. And I didn't understand that Rich wasn't talking religion, but he was talking about his relationship with God. One thing he said many times that stuck in my mind, he would always start his speeches off with the same sentence. I am just a sinner saved by grace. Yeah, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's who I really am, you know. And I thought, you know, if he's a sinner, what am I? At the same time that this was going on, I became sick. And I had a rare form of muscular dystrophy. Then I underwent two bypass surgeries, and every time that I went in for surgery or was in the uh, heart hospital, Rich would call, and he would call, and he would check on me, and he'd say, how are you doing? And then uh, we would pray on the phone. He would pray for me, and uh, it just gave me such courage 
here's another person who was given some courage, Amway pilot, Rick Fiddler. Shortly after takeoff, about 20 minutes later, uh, we experienced a loss of tail rotor, which resulted in us doing an auto rotation and a crash landing into Lake Michigan. We exited the helicopter just before it sank in 320 feet of water. And the Coast Guard eventually got to us about an hour, hour 30 after we were in the water. And the water was 54 degrees, so hypothermia was probably getting very close to setting in. Once we were rescued and back to the Coast Guard station, when I arrived, the commander stopped me and advised that there had been a gentleman on the phone for over an hour waiting for our rescue and that he wanted to talk to us as soon as we got back to the station. He didn't tell him who he was, he just said he worked with us. So I went over and picked up the phone and it was Rich. He wanted to make sure we were okay, and he wanted to let us know that he'd been praying for us ever since he had heard about the aircraft going down. The next day, Rich DeVos had decided to fly back to Grand Rapids. All the way from his home in Florida just to do something for this employee. He walked in the hangar and said he wanted to go for a helicopter ride. I said, well, where do you want to go? And he said, I don't care, I just want to go for a ride. So we pushed our other helicopter out. Back then, and we had two. We took off, and he decided he wanted to go to Lake Michigan. So we flew out to the lake, flew along the shoreline, and then eventually headed back towards Ada. He asked us to land right in front of the plant, in front of all the windows where all the corporate executives sat. And he got out, had us shut the helicopter down, and we all stood out there in the front yard for a while and talked before we took off and flew back to the airport. It was very obvious that his goal was to come to Grand Rapids and show us that he had confidence in us as well as show everybody in Ada that he had confidence in us by going for another helicopter ride and making us land right in front of the plant so everybody could see. Uh, when you talk about Rich DeVos uh, as a man, um, I can't say enough about him. He's the one that got us back in the aircraft again within 10 hours of the accident. Here's artist Paul Collins, who happens to be black, on visiting Amway's headquarters for the first time. Went into Ada to have lunch, and I was uh, told, uh, you're going to be working out there doing some stuff for Amway, huh? I said, yeah, those are some weird guys, man. They may not ever pay you. And uh, I didn't pay any attention to it, and I went out and I told Rich about it, and Rich told me, let me tell you something funny. The same guys that told you that about us said, you know, colored boys don't know how to do that kind of work. <laughs> so we both proved them wrong. Rich was colorblind. He could care less about your color. And not only was he helping me to get other people as my backers, uh, he acted like he was my father, really. My father died really early, and he was just really concerned. He would call me. He would come by the house, he would take me places with him, we'd fly in the helicopter together. And uh, he just made so much in my world happen to me, and now I'm known all over the world because of Rich DeVos. Here's Steve Van Andel. I went through some challenging periods where, where my wife passed away and things like that, and he was always encouraging to me. Always kind of came up and said, things always will get better, keep looking forward. He would sign all his notes, love you. He would tell everybody that, I love you. Here's Pat Williams. I've got a number of notes that he has sent me, and he signs them, love you, Rich. Uh, I've got all those notes framed, by the way. 
Uh, I can imagine there are probably thousands of those notes framed around the world. That's a huge boost to your soul. And here's Ambassador Peter Secchia, two years before Rich passed away. Listen, Rich has always signed his letters, love you. And I copied that from him 30 years ago, and I just spell my love L-U-V. But love you, and a smiley face is my signature. His was love you. But the best part of it all is that he would always tell people, love you, thank you, I love you, or Helen and I love you. It was just normal for him to do that. And yes, I've heard it many, many times. And I enjoy it every time he says it to me. And, and we still give each other a hug. He was 90 years old. In fact, tomorrow he'll be 90 years old. And uh, I'm sure that uh, when we go to his birthday party, and I'm fortunate enough to be invited, he's having all of his family, all the generations, and three outside guests. Two heart doctors and me. So I'm in high cotton because I know I'm going to be with a man who loves me. And what storytelling from so many people who knew and loved Rich DeVos and that he was quick to express his love with folks. Well, again, that's not something we would ordinarily equate with American businessmen or women, but it was just who he was. And by the way, over 6,470 different people posted written tributes to Rich on his memorial website, most of them by the over three million people in the Amway family across the world. And we thought we'd close out this celebration of Rich's extraordinary life by hearing some of the most extraordinary tributes read by the people who wrote them. Thank you for the 19 years of work at Amway Corporation. Many of us knew little about economics and how blessed we were to have those jobs. Working for Amway lifted me and my children out of poverty and allowed me as a single mother to raise my children to be contributing U.S. citizens. The work gave me self-respect and dignity and proved that a female could provide for her family. Rest in peace, Rich. Your legacy lives. Bob and I are very thankful for the extra income we made from our Amway business. It enabled us to adopt our daughter at five and a half months from Korea. She is now married to a great guy, and they have three children of their own. We had four boys at the time. Money was tight, and we probably would not have adopted. We are forever thankful. Bob and Trish Buttleman he changed my thinking with a simple sentence. Bodo, he said, To become rich, you must not spend your money you make. Yours, Bodo and Gisela from Germany. I'd always wanted to say thank you to Mr. Rich DeVos, because Amway wasn't just a business he started. It was a seed he sowed. We attended an optional Sunday morning service at a business function. And it was at that event we committed our lives to Christ. Whether we succeeded in Amway or moved on to other ventures, every step since then has been directed by the decision we made that day. My heart is with the DeVos family and pray the peace of God that surpasses all understanding be with you all. Thank you for sowing the right seeds. 
there are thousands of us who are grateful. And sowing the right seeds indeed. I wanted to close with a story about the opening line of all of his speeches, and you heard about it earlier, but it bears repeating. Quote, years ago I was invited to speak, and this is Rich DeVos. Quote, years ago I was invited to speak at a banker's conference at Mackinac Island. The MC gave me this huge flowery introduction. I went on and on. When I finally got up to speak, I said, come on, I know who I really am. I'm just a sinner, saved by grace. The line just came out. A few days later, I received a note from a guy who was in the audience. He wrote, quote, When you said that, something hit me like a lightning bolt. I knew I was a sinner too, and that I had to change my life. God used that line to bring conviction to this man's soul. So today, whenever I'm asked to speak, I tell the crowd, I'm just a sinner, saved by grace. Regardless of any flowery introductions, that's who I truly am. And he changed so many people's lives with a job, with financial independence. But the real work of Rich DeVos planting those seeds, because he knew in the end he was a child of God, loved by the God who made him. Rich DeVos's story, our this day in history, he was born in 1926, here on Our American Stories.